I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres. We try to give you unique insights into your favorite authors and, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Today, I had the incredible honor of talking to Jaron Lanier. I have long been an admirer of his. I've read all his books. He's a Silicon Valley genius. He was one of the early internet guys. He's a radical. He's uh, joyful. He's rebellious. I just absolutely adore him. And now his latest book, which is provocative, you could tell right by the title, is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And I hope you'll find the conversation with him as fascinating as I did. We are joined today by Jaron Lanier, an American writer, a computer scientist, a visual artist, a composer of classical music. He is considered a founding father in the field of virtual reality. He and James Zimmerman left Atari in 1985, which seems like, you know, the 1800s, to found VPL Research, which is the first company to sell VR goggles and gloves. His previous books, of which I'm a fan of all of them, are You Are Not a Gadget, Who Owns the Future and the Dawn of the New Everything. Jaron is here today to talk about his latest book. Uh, The title is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Lanier examines the effect social media has on our lives, relationships, politics, and argues that we should delete all social media accounts. Why should we say goodbye to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? Lanier finds that social media fosters addiction and generally makes us feel worse and fearful about each other and the world. As Zoe Williams wrote in her review in The Guardian, if triggering emotions is the highest prize and negative emotions are easier to trigger, how could social media not make you sad? Jaron, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jaron, you were there at the dawn of the Internet and were concerned about where that might take us before it became a hot topic. What contributed to your concern in when did that concern start creeping into your brain? Yeah, well, um, if I, it's been some decades now, but if I look over my old writings, it seems to me that I started writing um, fearful essays about the direction we were taking around 92. In fact, I even found wow. one in the early 90s that worries that someday there'll be automated uh, bots, fake people that'll create fake impressions and uh, be used to throw elections and so forth. You said uh, that so, then? Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Um, the, the sad thing is I wasn't the only one. Uh, from the very dawn of computer science, uh, researchers like Norbert Wiener were talking about the ways that the technology could be misused. And back in the 90s, uh, there were a handful of my colleagues who were also getting noisy about it. But those of us who were worried were just, I don't know how to put it, we were socially ostracized. Uh, It's just very, very hard to be a naysayer when you're part of this sort of ecstatic, idealistic community. Nobody wants to hear it. 
Uh, and I love that community. Like I was, I, I, I was then, and I remain supportive of the tech community. You know, I, I just think we made a mistake, and we have to admit it. We have to own up to it and fix it. And what was it? How would you characterize the mistake? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> like with everything with computers, there, you can you can spend a year talking about it and still not get all the details. But I'll do the quickest, quickest version I can. Um, I think the main problem is that we were so sure of ourselves back in the 80s and 90s that we let idealism cloud our vision. I'll give you two examples of that. One of them comes from the right and the other from the left, and they're both part of the problem. From the right, we had this libertarian mania at the dawn of the Internet that said, even if we know there's going to be something that will be universally needed on the Internet, like the ability to have an account for a person, which is just like, how could you not have that? You need to be able to get on it, right? And uh, even something like that, we weren't going to define as part of the basic Internet. It wouldn't be part of the basic web. We were going to leave it to this sort of magical thinking, which was called private industry, which would solve the problems better. But we knew perfectly well that based on just the math, what we're really talking about is new monopolies that would arise and would be real problems. Mm -hmm. I I remember saying to Al Gore, who was the politician who spearheaded the Internet back then, um, you know, we're making a gift of hundreds of billions of dollars to persons unknown (laughs) by just leaving these things open. Open. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So that was the libertarian sort of, and and I'm not anti-market. I actually love markets and capitalism, but that was just too extreme. That was ridiculous. You know, that was like saying that all roads must be private. It just creates either giant monopoly or a giant mess, but it doesn't create a workable society. All right. So then from the left, there was another idea, which was perhaps even more damaging, which is that everything should be free. When it comes to the world of information or anything that you can move around on the Internet, that stuff has to be socialism. Everybody shares for free. Everybody receives for free. And uh, any any hint of money is evil and horrible, and anybody who proposes it must be a terrible person. And that, that sense was incredibly thick um, in the 90s and into the first decade of the, the 21st century. And the problem with it is that, if you're telling people, well, hey, we live in a market society, so people have to do businesses, and, and they have to because the Internet wouldn't work without them. We just decided before that we're leaving all these basic functions to business, right? So business is mandatory. However, we're telling them they can't make money from the obvious thing, which is what they do online. <laughs> you can't charge for services. You can't pay for information. So if that's the case, what's left? The only thing left is the advertising model. So people can experience the illusion that they're just sharing and getting stuff for free, while actually everything's paid for by hidden people off to the side. And those people have only one motivation, which is to manipulate those users who are experiencing the illusion. So the whole thing just turned into this game of who could screw with who, who could trick who. It turned the Internet from what should have been a tool for people to know reality and to know each other into this tool for people to know lies and trick each other. It completely inverted the whole purpose of the project. It's a gigantic, embarrassing, horrible mistake. So, Jaron, to elaborate on what you're talking about, share with us what B.F. Skinner has to do with all of this. Oh, God. Well, 
so this is a <laughs> this is a, a whole long and interesting tale. Uh, B.F. Skinner was one of the celebrity scientists in the movement called behaviorism, um, and the other best known one is probably Pavlov, who you know rang the bell to get the dog to salivate. <laughs> People mm. probably know about that. B.F. Skinner is a, a 20th century figure who uh, made the science of behaviorism a little more formal and codified. There's an uh, idea of a Skinner box named in his honor, which is a controlled laboratory environment where you can place an animal typically, or sometimes um, a, a hapless graduate student <laughs> or, or undergraduate uh, in the basement of a psych department. And they're in this cage or box or room where there, there's no variation. There, there are no random things that are happening. Everything's controlled. And that happens so that you can study exactly what stimulus you can add to the situation and what effect it'll have on the subsequent behavior. It's a way of trying to create a a very abstract and controlled experiment for understanding how to change behavior patterns. And so it turns out that Skinner was one of the very first designers of interactive network experiences. He worked on the thing that came before the internet, um, which was this network of computers for education in the Midwest um, that most people don't know about. But he was actually there way before almost anyone. And his idea was that you'd use the computer network to create behavior modification on a massive scale in order to create a controlled society that didn't have all these weirdos and eccentrics and whatnot. It was this, an ultra dystopian uh, vision. I mean, it was really like out of the Matrix movies or something. Um, and what time frame was this? His actual work designing interfaces would have been early 60s. Now, um, I have to say he wasn't a direct practical um, <clears throat> antecedent to, to the systems that actually implemented this stuff on a mass scale, like the Facebook brands, like Instagram. He was earlier, and then it was all forgotten, and then they had to recreate it on their own. I'm not aware of folks at Facebook having been aware of Skinner's earlier efforts. They didn't reach back and say, aha, Here's a model. No. Um, computer science culture doesn't believe in history for the most part. <laughs> uh, that's one of the reasons I try to talk about it so much because I think it's incredibly important. Yeah, there's a there's a line by Daniel Borstein who had been with the Library of Congress that said uh, trying to plan for the future without looking at history is like trying to plant a cut flower. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I like that quote a lot. I mean, this has been something that's bothered me for quite a, quite a long time. Right now, there's a tremendous demand in colleges for computer science classes. Everybody wants to be a computer scientist because if you're a computer scientist, you get to be next to the computers that are running the world and the information supremacy that those computers have gather all the wealth and power of the world because information supremacy is where it's at. So everybody wants that. But at the same time, if you're a computer science major – um, you're, you typically on most campuses don't really get much exposure to humanities. You don't really learn a lot of history. And, and that's just backwards. It should just be the opposite. If you want to get close to those big computers, you should be forced to learn all this stuff. It should mm. be a requirement. Jaron, have you said that to universities? Oh, yeah. And, I'm, and once again, I'm not the only one. I mean, I, I, um, if you had interviewed me, say, five years ago, I think at that time I might have qualified as a radical in my world and as really an outlier. That's not true anymore. Mm. In fact, I kind of miss being a radical. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of fun. At this point, a lot of people are saying things like this, and rightfully so. Um, 
there really hasn't been much in the way of change yet. I mean, I kind of feel like the university should make a deal. You want computer science courses, great. In order to take one computer science course, you have to take two humanities courses, mm. and that's true all the way through, whatever your major is. I hope you I, do convince somebody about yeah. that. But anyway, back to Skinner. Um, Skinner's direct work was forgotten as far as the industry was concerned. I mean, it happened in the Midwest, for God's sakes. Who cares about the Midwest? But uh, <laughs> but the folks in California who started companies like Google and Facebook um, – did effectively implement something like a Skinner box around each person. Uh, it's a it's a invisible one. It's made by your smartphone and lately your smart speaker. It's watching what you do all the time. It's gathering all the data it possibly can, and it's customizing or calculating an experience feed for you as much as it can, which it can whenever you're staring at the little screen at least. And it's implementing a loop that's trying to notice what bits of experience it can send to you that have an effect on your behavior patterns and it's different for each person and once it discovers those it uses them according to algorithms to start to modify you and so you know the majority of the world certainly the rich world has been placed into skinner boxes for the first time it's a, it's a bizarre experiment so the link between the left and the right as you're describing it the socialists and the libertarians became advertisers uh, right as a way of monetizing something that neither person, neither group wanted to have it do with money, right? So they stepped into the breach and said, I know how to make money from this. Uh, Yeah, uh, but but I don't think it should be called advertising. I just like that because traditional advertising has often annoyed me, but I don't think it's the end of the world. This is very different because it's customized for each person to implement a Skinner box on them. It's It shouldn't be called advertising. You can easily draw a red line and say that something that's trying to do that to each individual separately should be called behavior modification and right. not advertising. And, and so spend a minute with us on this because some people will say, well, advertising has been around for a really long time. Like what the hell's the difference between seeing an ad on TV and an ad on my smartphone. So what's the difference? Yeah, the difference is that the ad on the TV doesn't see you. Right. It, it, it's, it's a total difference. It's like, it's like the question of uh, visiting a country where you speak a language versus one where you don't speak the language. Or, 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 I don't even, or it's like interacting with somebody who's your employee, who you have power over versus someone who's random. The, the rules are different. When there's constant spying on you, when you're under surveillance and that data is used to customize your experience, you can be put under subconscious not total control, but influence. Facebook itself has published peer-reviewed research repeatedly that shows that it can do things like make people sadder without the people being aware that it was being done to them. You're not aware of how it's happening. You're just different. It just becomes like part of the environment that's influencing you. That is something that traditional advertising could never do. Everybody saw the same ad, or at least vast numbers of people did. It wasn't customized in that way, and it wasn't updated second to second in order to implement a behavior mod regime. So the the difference is night and day, and the use of the term advertising for behavior modification is uh, incorrect, and so it creates this question, well, what's wrong with advertising? Except it's not advertising. It's something totally different. It's like it's it's really something new in the world. There hasn't been any, there have been mass addictions before, like alcohol and or let's say gambling, which is technically closer. There have been societies that had mass surveillance before, like the, like oh, I don't know the East German Stasi or the current North Korea. There hasn't ever been 
a situation where there's this combination of mass surveillance, addiction, and individualized behavior modification on a mass scale. That is something new in the world. Before we get to the rest of my conversation with Jaron, I'd like to tell you about our new sponsor. So our new sponsor is Zola, Zola Zola.com, Z-O-L-A, and they are a wedding planning site. They're free, and it's like this really easy way for couples to manage their entire uh, wedding process. Everything's online. It's all in one place. Just takes minutes to set up. They've got like a wide range of gifts. You could use it as your guest registry. So if you want to start your free wedding website and get $50 off your registry, just go to Zola.com, Z-O-L-A.com slash book. I'm not going to use Zola for my wedding since I actually now have my anniversary coming up of 49 years. So my marriage to Kevin is working out just fine. But two of my favorite people uh, got married last summer and they did use Zola, Sarah and Ian. I loved it. It was easy for me to use their guest registry to send a gift. But here's what the website does. You can set up your wedding website. You can send save the date cards. You can send out invitations. You can come up with your plan for your wedding. It gives you a checklist to set up or your guest list. So if you're planning on getting married or if your son or daughter is planning on getting married, this seems like a pretty cool, easy way to do it. So again, it's Zola.com, Z-O-L-A.com slash book and check it out. Now let's get back to my conversation with Jaron Lanier. When you say that everything we're doing is being subjected to surveillance, is a conversation I'm having on my phone, is that information being used, is are my emails being read? I mean, I, I think we all know the obvious. They know where we're going on the web. They know what we're looking up. They know what we're Google searching. But does it extend itself to conversations and contents in email? Well, um, one of the huge problems right now is that nobody knows. Mm. Even the companies themselves will often say one thing with apparent sincerity, and then a year later discover, oh, actually, <laughs> we were we were snooping on you in that way. We said we weren't snooping on you. There have been many, many examples of this. Google will say, well, we're not looking in your windows when the, the car that maps streets for, for, for our mapping program goes by. And then it turned out, oh, yeah, actually, we do categorize what's through your windows. Uh, that happened in Germany. Um, they'll say all kinds of things. So um, Google explicitly will read your mail, to give you free email, that's actually in the open, and I find it incredibly disturbing that people would agree to it. Um, there's been a lot of controversy lately about whether smart speakers are listening all the time, and nobody's sure. As you probably know, there's this whole world of people who say, well, I was talking about something just in the room and suddenly it turned up in my ads. Exactly. Does that mean that somebody's listening all the time through my phone or my smart speaker? Not necessarily, because um, the way big data works is... Uh, uh, let's say that there's information on, you know, billions of people as there is on systems like the Facebook brands like Instagram. And let's say that they've discovered a correlation where people who like to wear long socks tend to prefer a certain amount of sugar in their coffee or just some bizarre thing like that. And so if the algorithm has noticed 
that a bunch of other people who are in the same bucket in that particular way with you became interested in something, whatever it is, then they might assume that you are as well. And there's no science behind it. It's not like anybody has an explanation for that. It's just a correlation with other people who are similar to you in some way. So it's possible that that's the reason why suddenly this thing you talked about was showing up as an ad for you. It just might be that without you realizing it, you have some sort of something in common with all these other people. It might be that you all happen to see the same movie where a character was doing something. I mean, there's no way to know. It's never untangled. Um, but the problem is that the companies themselves don't even seem to be able to keep track of what they're doing. And your list of the things they can observe is far from what we know for sure does happen. For instance, they always know where you are. Your location data is kept with incredible detail. In fact, um, you can even buy someone else's location data right now if you know the tricks. It's, it's very strange and very disturbing. Uh, there's a lot of correlation between different parts of your life. So, for instance, there might be a correlation between your pharmacy purchases and your grocery purchases and your searches. And, and that combination of things might say something about your health that even your doctor doesn't know and you don't know. That it's, it's a giant correlation machine. Um, and... It could be turned to the, the good of humanity, but the incentive structure based on what's called, you know, uh, incorrectly, the advertising model makes everything about who can trick who, who can screw with who. So instead, it's just used for a massive project of who can manipulate others uh, for some kind of, uh, you know, short-term benefit. That's all it's used for right now, which is horrible. So let's let, let's get to the, you know, because I'm sufficiently uh, upset and... <laughs> concerned, yeah. if not by reading your book, by just seeing what's going on uh, in the world. And so one, one question is the mass use of all this uh, online social media platforms also seems to bring out negative kinds of behavior. You, you right. know, is there something in the same process of how we're being manipulated, actually making us uh, nastier, less kind, uh, more cranky? Yeah, um, there there is. Um, that's exactly what happens. And, and here's the reason why. Um, so imagine for a second that you're an engineer making this algorithm and the algorithm has to pick up on when some change in the experience feed that's come, coming to somebody through their phone or whatever other device they interact with, you change something in what the person experiences, and that's supposed to have a measurable impact on their behavior. Now, the more dramatic and quick and persistent that change is, the easier the algorithm can be programmed to pick it up right? The programs sometimes pick up really subtle things like, oh, if I use this this blue border and this font for this product, it actually um, lets, makes the people look a little longer. And, and these subtle things are picked up on, but the dramatic things are picked up on more. So if you see something online that gets you riled up, it gets you upset. That makes you and and the way the algorithm can't look into your brain. All it can do is it can see maybe where your eyes are looking. In some cases, a lot of them are playing with eye tracking now. So it looks at what parts of the image you might be reading. It certainly looks at what you click through, what you write, how long you're on it, how 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 often you return to the same topic and the same people in the following days and so forth. 
so basically it's an emotional response that's intense and the emotional responses that are intense and have that quality are called the fight or flight responses it's um uh fear and uh aggression you know and so when you can inspire those in people it's just easier to measure it's not ultimately more intense in the overall sphere of a human life but in terms of the algorithm can see it's the easiest to pick up on and so therefore the cranky responses are the ones that get reinforced just because Mm. they're the most easily detected and then the people who have the cranky responses are more likely to be introduced to each other they're easier for advertisers to reach they're easier for bad actors like fake russian accounts with with fake propaganda to reach and that's why facebook's study on changing emotions was about making people sad instead of making people happy it's just easier to make people sad or angry or scared than it is to make them happy, optimistic, constructive. It's just it's just easier, easier because of this detection problem. You're coming up with the 10 reasons to drop social media, and I want to get to that next. But let's start with what might seem like the obvious. Can we have any hope that Facebook or Twitter or Google will correct this on their own? I maintain that hope personally because I'm inside the community and I am try I have been and many others have been trying to talk them into changing, including in the last year or two their own employees. A lot of the engineers who do this have become highly uncomfortable with it and they have a very powerful voice at the table where few there has very few voices. I mean this is a very exclusive world that doesn't care about politics or anybody else really, but the engineers have a huge impact. Um and so I'm hopeful they'll change. But in terms of counting on them to change on their own, no, I, I don't think that's wise. I think um, these these uh, companies only exist because of society. They're embedded in society. They function within it. And society has to be able to respond to them if they're damaging society. I mean, it's just obvious. Um, you know, the tricky question is exactly how. The two most popular approaches are privacy rights and antitrust. Privacy rights is actually being enacted in Europe, more or less. It's it's a rocky road, but they're starting it. Um, antitrust is a very common idea now because it comes from politicians from across the political spectrum who who think that this stuff has gotten out of control. Um, maybe there's a role for that. I personally want to just shut down the economic incentives. I, th- I want to shut mm. down the advertising model. I want to make it illegal to use one's own data to customize a feed for the benefit of somebody else, period. That should be considered illegal. It should be considered a fraud. It should be like a lawyer that you pay actually representing somebody else. It should be considered a breach of fiducial responsibility and a crime. Anybody who does it should go to jail. I mean, I, I feel very strongly about that. And, the, and, and if you believe that, then you also have to believe that an absolutely necessary thing is to come up with other business models so they don't have to do it, so they have alternatives. And, I, and so I've been working a lot on these other business models because I think that that's the way to create a, a positive path forward. So what can we individually do? I mean, is it really practical to think that people will shut down their social media? Are there some platforms that are more addictive than others and more a part of this uh, problem? How do we really go about – let's say I read your book. I did read your book and I buy every reason. Uh, that I ought to shut down my social media, but I got to go to work. I've got to keep in touch with my kid. I've, you know, so how do you actually remove yourself from social media? 
Okay, so there's there's um, a few things that I have to say. One thing is I repeat in the book over and over again to maybe too many times that this is all kind of a statistical thing. There are a minority of people who actually personally benefit from social media and have very positive experiences on it, and I'm not going to deny their reality. There are people who for whom uh, staying makes more sense than leaving, and it's not my job to judge to other people because I don't, I don't know you. I, and so this has to be a personal decision and I don't want people to damage themselves um, for, for a larger cause over this. If, if social media is really necessary to your life or beneficial, don't leave, don't, you know, leave protest, talk about it, uh, be more aware, learn, but you don't have to leave. Don't damage yourself. Okay. I mean, I, that's, that should be number one. Um, that said, because these things are so sneaky, a lot of people confuse their addiction with an actual benefit. Mm. So it's it's very much like talking to a gambling addict, where the gambling addict will say, "Oh no, I have a system, <laughs> you know, yeah. or I could stop any time." I'm not one of those, and so that makes it really tricky. And so, what I suggest, and and this is only a suggestion, because really only you can decide. What I suggest is that get off it for a while and be experimental and see what happens. Mm. Uh, I'm not aware of a single person who's gotten off and then thought it was a terrible decision. I've, I'm aware of people who've gotten off and then made a considered decision to get back on for for some practical or situational reason. Um, I'm aware of people who quit and then had um, mixed experiences where they had trouble dealing with the boredom um, and so on. But most people report that they feel healthier, they feel mm. the relationships are better. That's they what feel, I've heard. Yeah, better. they feel better informed with less work, less effort. Um, uh, there, there was um, one phrase that you see a lot is, I, I, now I have an embarrassing amount of free time. Like uh, People put so much time into the addiction machine that they forget how much time there is in life. And when they suddenly regain that time, it's sort of like this sudden vacuum that can be uncomfortable. They don't know how to fill it. They can be bored. But that's sad because life is short, you know, and and I, I think you should have that problem. Like, you know, yeah. like I, I actually think um, that's not a bad thing. I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's introducing you to the potential of life. And I, I, I my recommendation is you consider embracing it. But once again, I don't know you and I can't. It's not my place. So, Jaron, is um, an interjection uh, on this. One of the authors I interviewed, who's a physicist that I'm a huge admirer of, Alan Lightman, uh, who wrote a great uh, book called Einstein's Dream. But his latest book is um, about the incredible value of wasting time for exactly what you're, you're you're talking about, creating these open spaces he he suggests, and I believe, actually opens your heart, your mind to nature, but more importantly, or as importantly, joy and the kind of possibilities that fill that kind of space. Well, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I That's been my experience of um, how to become happy and find meaning in life. Um, is is to embrace the empty spaces and boredom and and really not you know like if you're nervously clicking on on a glowing screen all the time just life 
passes by and at the end all of those clicks were in the service of somebody else who who owns the platform mm. so more who's than, more than for you who should people drop first okay so i have a very easy test for that okay. which is services where vladimir putin thought it was worth intervening <laughs> to try to affect <laughs> the politics and um and this is not this is not just about American politics because we've seen the same thing in uh, Brazil, Italy, um, Philippines, Turkey, uh, Sweden, um, Britain, the Brexit vote. Um, so there's this global pattern. And so I think uh, Mr. Putin has done the work for you. And so at the top of the list of the worst of the worst is Facebook. But remember, Instagram is Facebook. WhatsApp is Facebook. Mm. Messenger is Facebook. These all connect in the back into the same back room where all the shenanigans are happening. So um, drop those guys. And then next in line is uh, Google, although that situation is more complex because unlike Facebook, it's possible to have constructive relationships with Google um, if you're just using their productivity apps or something. But the thing that's dangerous is YouTube because YouTube has an automatic feed feature, which is implementing a behavior mod system. And indeed, if you if you let the automatic feed choose videos for you, it'll tend to drag you into cranky paranoid territory fairly soon. Um, I uh, there have been people who've studied that in a scholarly way, and I've informally done experiments with large numbers of people, and it, it seems to always be true. So if you're going to use any Google service, especially YouTube, do it without a Google account and with as many privacy blockers as possible and without auto feed and choose every video manually. That's extremely important so that you're in charge. Don't ever, ever take a recommendation from Google. Um, the search function is also highly corrupted. And there, once, uh, there are people trying to do um, less corrupt search engines, and um, DuckDuckGo is one that a lot of people have gone to. But in general, there's a world of privacy plugins and alternatives as far as search goes. Um, don't use some service from Google that's spying on you, like a an email service that's reading your emails. In fact, just don't you don't have a Google account, you know. Mm. And then next up is Twitter. Twitter is a terribly sad case. I I know. By the way, I should say with all these companies, these are not people I know from afar. These are all friends. I know yeah. the guys who founded Google. I've known them from when they were young and cute, you know. And I know a lot of the early people at Facebook. And uh, same with Twitter. And uh, oh God, do Twitter, you get into heated th- debates with them all the time, or? In private, you know, do they agree? Yeah, sure. No, I, I, I say the same stuff to them that I'd say to you, and they you know, typically disagree with me, but I get a hearing, and I've noticed a softening in, in the last year, so mm. you know, I just keep working at it. But anyway, Twitter... Twitter's a terrible case because it's both damaging the world and not even a great business, you know, and so that's like Twitter, something's got to happen to Twitter, but nobody can really come up with it. Um, and then uh, Reddit can be problematic. Snap is a borderline case, seems a little better, but also it's it's like Twitter not really doing that but well. But they might hurt hurt themselves, right? Snap might they, be taking care of it on their own. You mean by going out of business? Yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the kind, the thing is, I, since I know the people, I've been I've been to Snap and I've spent time there and talked to them. And so, to, you know, it's different when you know the people. So I, mm. I tend to not – I vilify the business model. I vilify the practices. But not I vilify the people. This, this architecture we've built. For the most part, not the, the people. There are a few people who are involved who I struggle to think of positively, and I find it hard. <laughs> but I'm working on it. I want to love all my fellow human beings. I, I think that that's the path forward. But the vast majority of people in the tech industry really are well-meaning. And when you make as big a mistake as we made, it's – 
it is hard to undo, but we have to take it very seriously. Mm. So when I when I think about all of this, Jaron, and I think it's probably change might come slow, but it you know I sort of think of it as each of us doing one thing at a time. But I wonder, you have an eleven year old daughter. What what do you worry about for her? Well. See, the problem is that we've been feeding and, and clothing and, and housing her, and so she actually turned 12. And so <laughs> this is, this is the, the problem with parenting is that when you do it right, they, they sort of gradually grow up and they change every day and then they leave you. And, and make up I, their own minds. It doesn't seem right. Yeah, oh, she really has her own mind. Like, like she doesn't let me get away with a thing. So um, I, you know, this is a, a question I'm asked all the time because as is very popularly um, – described, uh, a lot of Silicon Valley parents don't let their kids use technology and send them to sort of hippie nature schools. Yeah, it's a little ironic that they're doing that. Oh, it's a little ironic, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my daughter's friends sometimes have parents in the industry, and she is typically... So she's often with kids who are under much strict, stricter control as far as this stuff than she is. Because I've taken, I tried something different with her. What I do is I, I drag her to the different companies so she can actually see what it's like at some place like Snap. And she says, wow, it's like a bunch of nerds in cubicles who are trying to figure out how to run our lives. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're very nice people. But why, like, when you act, on the one hand, you have empathy for them as people and you don't vilify them. On the other hand, it's easier to say, why should I let you make decisions for me? Like, you know, when yeah. you've actually seen the person, and it's not just the Wizard of Oz, when you see the person behind the curtain, then even if you don't hate the person, you still become a little reluctant to, to letting that person guide your life. And so, I've had the the rare advantage of being able to take her around so she can actually see the people and make her and, own decision. And yeah, and and I think it's had a beneficial effect, but obviously that's not useful advice because very few people can do that. Yeah. So <laughs> what's my advice? Yeah, what's your advice never, there, Mr. You know, Lanier? I, <laughs> I've never been a parent before. I'm doing this the first time. I feel like a total beginner when it comes to, I mean, I'm very happy to talk about the stuff where I feel like I have better knowledge and I'm an expert and I can share something that people wouldn't otherwise have access to. But just With parenting, parenting. Oh my God. I feel like <laughs> I'm just swimming in a sea of, of, of like peril and discovery all every day. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think, I think moderation, I think trying to control the kids totally can't be right, but letting them give, letting them be controlled is also not right. And so um, I just have all the empathy in the world for parents struggling with it. Cause I think it is really hard. Um, it's really hard to deal with your kid's addiction when somebody else has a, com- a commercial motive to foster that addiction and has gotten good at doing it through a mm. lot of experience. It puts you in a very hard situation. And I, I wish I had the magic answer to that. So were you pessimistic or optimistic about technology? Well, you know, I, Overall, I'm optimistic um, for a few reasons. One is, um, if you look at human history, we have managed to face some really difficult things in the past and come through. You know, we haven't blown ourselves up with nuclear weapons. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, we've been able to invent benefits to society without using them as blackmail or leverage to destroy civilizations very much anyway. So. For the most part, we're trying to increase the number of people with access to fresh water and antibiotics instead of decrease it. There are some horrible exceptions. Uh, but overall, I feel that our record has been uh, that we 
figure out how to adapt to new technologies in, in a decent way. Um, the problem now is that they're coming on so fast that we have to get better at it than we ever have been. And uh, mistakes are <laughs> harder to undo because when, when something gets into a computer, it, it kind of gets sticky. It's hard to change something that's been yeah. uh, controlled by computers because code is so hard to change, especially when there's a bunch of computers working together. So we've kind of gotten ourselves into a mess this time. But uh, I do think our record bodes well for us. I do think optimism is just more functional. Yeah. Um, I I think uh, pessimism has been just getting out of control lately. I I don't think there's been any optimistic science fiction this century of any prominence, and that's terribly disturbing to me. Um, is that a change in how science fiction was written earlier? Would was, was science fiction more optimistic, let's say, when it was written in the fifties? Well, or did it always go to the dystopian? You know. Science fiction in the 50s was utopian, but in a very simplistic way. Um, it was kind of repeating an American Manifest Destiny in the West kind of a fantasy. We'll go out there and we'll conquer the stars and uh, we're the best and all that. And that there was a lot of that. I think science fiction discovered a deeper form of optimism a little later on. You know, the, the touchstone I keep on coming back to is the 90s television version of Star Trek, the mm-hmm. Next Generation show, because it somehow it found this blend where you had a show that the nerds liked, but also had uh, non-nerd fans. The story was about people trying to learn to be better in concert with technology getting better. It's this constant... Mm-hmm struggle to, to, to find a higher ethical and moral ground at the same time as new technologies press you. And that's, that was the nature of that show, which is also the nature of mankind's struggle. And so there was something about it that was both true and fun and pleasant and that worked and apparently is impossible to discover again because, you know, ever since everything's turned to crap. What I like about what you're doing and the piece that I'm hoping listeners will take away is You're informing us about the dangers, and therefore we can become part of the solution. You know, the hope is that either the regulatory or the uh, better side of uh, Silicon Valley will understand that they need to improve, but we all need to be part of the solution. And, And I think that your book gives us a way to at least become more knowledgeable and, if not totally alter our behavior, refine our behavior in the ways that you talked about. So, Well, listen, if the book succeeds even slightly in that direction, it um, it is serving its intended purpose, and I, I hope that it does. Well, I, do I hope, hope it, it does, does, too, which is why I was excited about inviting you on to Just the Right Book. So I've got two last questions for you. Sure. Uh, one is, what are you working on next? As far as a book? Or or life or work or <laughs> anything. Oh, my God, there's so many. I, I have a kind of a nutso life that has many, many different things going on at once to the point where I sometimes can't even remember them all at a given moment. Um, I have a wonderful little group um, here in Berkeley, California, of researchers who are interested in um, visualizing difficult things, one of the projects I'm I'm trying to do, I'm I'm fostering, I'm hoping it goes somewhere, is better explanations for what's going on inside the modern algorithms, machine learning, and, mm. and so on, so that people don't find them as mysterious. 
even engineers find them mysterious. So I'm trying to see if we can do something to cut through that. And um, I also have music projects going on because I'm also a musician and all kinds of crazy things. Um, and uh, I, I write uh, I've been in a little bit of a break from writing just recently, but I'm starting up again and writing a few articles. Um, there's a few movie and streaming things that might happen based on my earlier work, so pursuing some of those. And then I still do research in virtual reality. I'm still working on some of the unsolved problems in it. Um, and I, I have collaborations with physicists on some sort of... Uh, You're a busy boy. Yeah, yeah, I, I am. Which is great, and, right? And I, I mean... Yeah, and I spend a lot of time talking to our cats. And in fact, there's a cat who's come up to me here who's the same black cat who's on the cover of 10 Arguments in the U.S. edition anyway. And his name is Potato, and he's not on social media. Fabulous. Fabulous. So, Jaron, here's my last question. Well, actually, yes. my next to the last question. <laughs> my okay. one question I have, just my own curiosity, is uh-huh. your middle name is Zeppel? Right. What's the source of that name? I don't think I've ever seen that as a name. <clears throat> Okay, so it's a full story is interesting enough to take a little while to tell, and I'll do my best to make it short. Um, my parents are both Jewish, and unfortunately, um, they were on the bad side of the history for the Jews. My mother survived a concentration camp, and my father's family was mostly wiped out by pogroms in Ukraine. Hmm. Um, we have the same background, and, Jaron. Ah, well... Um, yeah, one of um, I described some of this in my memoir book, which is earlier, which is called Dawn of the New Everything. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, one of my father's sisters was mute for her entire life because she'd survived by hiding under a bed and keeping completely silent while her family was murdered in a pogrom. Wow! Um, so that's my family background. My parents met in New York in the bohemian kind of um, underground beatnik world of the 1950s in Manhattan, and. My father had wanted a name that sounded white <laughs> and American mm-hmm. and, you know, normal and chose Lanier. Um, and the, he was naming himself after Sidney Lanier, the great Southern poet and musician of the 19th century, um, great flute player, founder of orchestras in the South and so forth, thinking, well, look, a name associated with the South is the least Jewish you can be in America. Mm-hmm. And they were just worried, you know. So then it, tr- it transpires that the name Lanier, including in Sidney Lanier's case, uh, derives from a particular source who's a woman named Amelia Lanier, who lived across the courtyard from William Shakespeare and was one of the few people we, we know of with whom Shakespeare interacted intensely. She's known as the first published female poet in the mm. English language and the first English language feminist. She wrote a book of sonnets that are kind of like parodies of Shakespeare. And in some of their notes, she seems to have come up with a phrase he used before he did. Um, she's really cool. So who's Amelia Lanier? Well, she comes from a Jewish family from Morocco that found their way to the Jewish ghetto in um, uh, Venice, and they were looking for work. They get a gig in uh, as court musicians in London, um, but once again, they want to pass. They don't want to sound Jewish. So she comes up with the name Lanier, which was... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> intended to sound as un-Jewish as possible. So her descendants turn out to be this long line of amazing poets and musicians. Uh, um, uh, 
Tennessee Williams' mom was uh, was uh, Lanier, and his middle name is Lanier. Um, Quincy Jones' mom was wow. Lanier, and and uh, and that's because a bunch of her descendants ended up in Barbados, leading to Quincy. And so, what's weird is that uh, the name tr- turns out to be totally appropriate for what I do, and and totally Jewish after all. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I take it; I, I'll, I'll accept it. And Zeppel. Well, Zeppel um, is an is the family name, and that is obscure. Um, we don't quite know what's going on with that. Um, it's uh, there aren't very many of them. There are a few that come from the same family who survived and ended up in America. So you can find Zeppels here and there. Um, it bears a resemblance to Zeppelin, and conceivably there's some kind of weird connection. But mm. um, to my knowledge, nobody's ever been able to figure that out. But well, it's thank a, you for this story, yeah. <laughs> Jaron. I, I I I definitely love that story. And here is my legitimate last question, which oh, okay. I ask all our guests, which is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh my God! Oh, not that question, because that's. The problem is that's impossible. It just makes my brain go into this meltdown because I think of so many books. I think of so many books that were so important to me. Um, I'm, oh my God. Um, in terms of my overall philosophy of the world, I was like, um, oh my God, you're going to make me crazy here. <laughs> um, James P. Carr's Finite and Infinite Games provides a good, very large scale background for thinking about technology, but that feels more academic. You're asking about the thing that really, really got me in the heart, right? Yeah, yeah. And oh my God. Um, I went through a Rumi craze where I was reading every possible translation of the, the mystical poet Rumi that I could, and that was a really big deal for me. Yep. Um, I, um, that could count. Martin Buber. Oh, Martin Buber's mine. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, apparently, um, he and my mother's father uh, were associates and, and had wow. some kind of connection, um, but I don't know the details of that. Um, oh, my God. I You know... <laughs> we can go with Rumi and and Boober. Rumi and Boober, why not? That's why not? Good... A- actually, yeah. Jaron, maybe you should write a book about the intersection between Rumi and Boober. Or it could be along. a kid's book. Rumi and Boober, can't you see it? <laughs> Rumi and Boober would get along wonderfully, <laughs> and I wish they were running things. I'm yeah. seeing a book. I'm seeing a book, Jaron. <laughs> Rumi and Boober. I'm on it. It sounds like a children's book. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. It does. It does. Well, Jaron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us and for the books that you write. I could not encourage our listeners more to pick up all your books. I think it rearranges your brain in a good way and I think uh, opens up a space for us to think about things differently. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so very much for having me on. And I wish you the very best of luck in your podcast and everything else. Thanks again to Jaron Lanier. His book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts, right now is available right now. Make sure to pick up a copy at your favorite independent bookstore. If you haven't subscribed to Just the Right Book yet, it's free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. 
And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.